Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, March 14th. Relations between Canada and China are in a precarious position after revelations of Chinese interference in Canadian elections. Is Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy ambitious enough and how economically tied are we to China? We get some answers from Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada and Executive Fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Have sanctions by NATO and allies like Canada succeeded in putting the economic squeeze on Russia? Just how long can the Russian economy fund the war in Ukraine? With some insight, we're joined once again by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. And Cybertip.ca currently receives an average of 70 sextortion reports every week. This morning, we were joined by Catherine Tabak, Program Manager of Cybertip.ca, to talk about this trending online issue and how we can best protect our kids from it. Cybertip.ca currently gets an average of sex, 70 sextortion reports per week. What exactly is sextortion and how do we protect our kids? Joining us with some help and understanding and helping to figure out how to protect the kids is Catherine Tabak, Program Director, Program Manager of Cybertip.ca. Good morning to you, Catherine. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you break down and define for us what exactly sextortion is so we can all understand what we're up against here? Absolutely. Um, So when we're talking about sextortion, we're looking at a type of blackmail that typically involves a victim connecting with someone online, Um, usually that other user is pretending to be someone else. Uh, We commonly see where they're looking, they're uh, pretending to be a young female, Um, and that person manipulates the victim into sending nude images or going on camera and engaging in sexual acts, and then immediately begins to threaten them um, with the distribution of that material if they don't uh, send them a sum of money or um, in terms of payment or in gift cards. Um, And uh, most commonly, we see those incidents happening on platforms such as Instagram and Snapchat. Exactly as you just described it has happened to a friend of mine. So I'm, I'm hearing about it, true experiences from both a boy who was targeted and from a girl whose family I also know who was targeted. And it, do you think, Catherine, is this, are we seeing more and more and more of this? Is it just due to, you know, the influx of younger people using social media more and more? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, we did see sort of um, this type of victimization sort of blow up in the online world. Um, you know, we we know that these criminal enterprises that are typically located overseas um, really took advantage of the fact that people were online and looking to connect more online. Um, and so in terms of what we're seeing reporting into the tip line, we're still seeing about 90% um, of victimization happening with males, but we certainly do see females come in um, you know, in their younger teens uh, having been victimized by this type of crime. And it, you're right, it doesn't seem to be, it's not a lot that the, the, the person wants. They just want you know, a small amount of money or gift cards, that sort of thing. But I guess the more kids you do it to, that, that total adds up. Is that sort of the, what's behind this? Yeah, so typically we would see where they're creating accounts and they're just reaching out to everybody and anybody um, looking for their next target. And so usually, uh, you know, unfortunately with males, they tend to be more impulsive online and that's why we believe, you know, that they're more easily targeted. And so, you know, it's a quick friend request. 
the, the communication quickly turns sexual. Um, and because the person is pretending to be a young, beautiful female, uh, unfortunately, males um, are more likely to be duped into, you know, engaging into sexual activity on camera or sending nude pictures. And like you mentioned, you know, it, it's not necessarily always a large sum of money. We definitely have seen, you know, thousands of dollars being requested. But we also see where victims are trying to bargain with the, the extortionist. Um, and so are saying, you know, I can't afford $1,000. So then the extortionist will come back and say, okay, well, pay me 100 bucks. Uh, within 48 hours and then all of this will go away and if the individual tries to pay them the money then we see the threats continue to escalate so paying the money does not solve sort of what they're managing at that time and we know do we not is am i correct in this that it's usually an older male behind it all and and the young beautiful women the photos that are being used these are are likely other young girls who've been victimized as well right yeah, we had actually, uh, not always, we've definitely seen some where they're being stolen from, you know, public facing Instagram profiles or um, other places online just by doing a quick reverse image search. Um, and so unfortunately, their images are being used and the information that they're posting online is, is being used to make, uh, to allow for the extortion group to make them seem more real. Um, so if you were to search the information, it looks like it's connected to like a legitimate profile, but unfortunately that's not the case. What do we do? I mean, in both the cases that I know from my experience with my friends, they, they talk to their kids incessantly. These kids knew the dangers. They knew what they were and were not supposed to do online. And yet they get caught up in it anyway. So what happens once they do get caught? How do we try to protect the kids at that point even? Mm-hmm. I think the, the, main thing honestly is to stop the communication if that extortion group does not have the opportunity to connect um like i said kids are really impulsive and they don't understand sort of the the the, um long-term consequences and risks and so they want to continue having those communication and, and it gives them a sense of control and so if a parent is stepping in the number one thing is to stop the communication reporting the accounts to the platforms um, and then, you know, if there was any payment or anything is really contacting financial institutions and putting a stop, you know, you can put in a, a, a fraud report in with the financial institution. Um, and also a lot of it is, is tied to just supporting the child and, and making sure that they understand that, you know, this won't be a forever thing. And then contacting us um, in terms of next steps and, and what we're able to do, especially if pictures were sent and how we can mitigate any distribution tied to that and making sure that we're in a position to reach out to those services as well and flag the accounts that are being used to extort others. And can you stop those photos being spread around? Because that's one of the, the scare tactics, right? Is they, they tell these kids who are being victimized that they're going to share these photos to everybody on Instagram, basically, certainly all the kids at their schools. And that's why they fall for it then, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. You know, it, it's a threat. And, and so the, the concerns tied to that, I think, is what escalates everyone's um, impulse to sort of give in to the demand. Um, we have tools here, one of them being called Project Arachnid, where we crawl the internet to send revolt removal requests tied to sexual imagery of youth and children. Um, so there's definitely some tools out there that can assist in getting um, that content removed. But the, 
the biggest thing is really notifying the platforms and making sure that they're aware and that they can take steps to mitigate any uh, like possession or distribution that's happening on their platform. Geez, I, I just don't think we can talk about this enough and remind our kids and our grandkids over and over and over again, because even though they've heard the message, you know, it, it happens and it happens, you know, to, to kids you wouldn't expect it to. So tell us cybertip.ca, what kind of services you offer and what people can go to your website to look for. Mm-hmm. So we're Canada's tip line for reporting incidents of online child sexual abuse and exploitation. Um, we have a team of analysts here that are triaging calls and reports from the public and essentially tied to sextortion, you know, they're giving very tangible steps to kids and families on how to manage uh, an incident of sextortion depending on what the threats are and what's occurring. Um, We also have a support services team here so on the flip side we can do referrals out to a support services team and those um, that puts them in a position to you know to do check-ins, helping with referral to therapists, uh, counseling services, getting the school involved and really bringing a community together to help support a youth that's been victimized online um, and then giving some more information about Project Arachnid and where that we might see fit with that in terms of mitigating any distribution of the material as well like like I mentioned is reaching out to the platforms uh, we have a lot of great connections uh, within these services and reaching out to those platforms and um, disrupting what's occurring online is one of the best steps to take. Thank you so much for breaking it down for us. I think, again, we just need to keep talking about it with our young people, make sure we help keep them safe. Thanks so much, Catherine. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine Tabak, Program Director of Cybertip.ca. Obviously, the website, Cybertip.ca. For help, you can go to needhelpnow.ca and then report at Cybertip.ca. Just keep an eye, remind the kids uh, uh, it's happening, and and it's happening right here in our very own city to kids who who know, who know, but are... they're falling victim to it anyway, so let's keep the conversation going. Relations between Canada and China are in a bit of a precarious position following the revelation about Chinese interference potentially in Canadian elections. Is Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy ambitious enough and how economically tied are we to China? Joining us to talk about it is Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada and Vice Chair with Canadian Committee on Pacific Economic Cooperation. Good morning to you, Hugh. Thanks so much for joining us early this morning. Good morning, sir. Nice to talk to you. Can you break down just sort of, you know, Cole's Notes version? What, what is Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy? What is this? Well, it's a new framework that was uh, unveiled officially in November and is still in the process of being rolled out. Uh, it's a five-year plan to... Uh, diversify and strengthen Canada's interest in the this new terminology Indo-Pacific which stretches I guess from our shores right across uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, North Asia and into the Indo-Pacific. It sets out a number of quite ambitious priorities uh, with uh, sort of broad funding packages attached and uh, basically uh, it is designed to uh, mobilize I guess you could Uh, the government of Canada and other stakeholders in diversifying and strengthening our relationships with this region. Now, part of that region, of course, is China, and it's quite interesting that uh, in many ways most of the initiatives are kind of anything but China. They're uh, to develop relations with other parts of Asia other than China. Uh, That said, uh, China is still a very big part of the region, so when we look at the numbers and so forth, if you take China out, um, it's it's much less impressive in terms of economic growth. So, but it, it basically is to diversify away from China and to kind of at the same time reset our relations with China. Is it more of a relationship building or is it in regards to trade or both? 
Well, there are five components, so it's uh, it, it's integrated. And what is interesting is a big piece of it is uh, peace and security, um, and so it has a, a defense component, uh, uh, a counterterrorism component, and so forth. Everything that we think of in terms of peace and security, both uh, in the region and domestically, uh, although the details are very vague in terms of exactly what is going to be spent in certain areas. It's, it's clearer in others. The second is uh, trade and investment, which of course is enormously important. Um, underpinning that is what is called investing in connections and people-to-people -people relationships. So that's the whole people movement piece, uh, students, visas, immigration, tourism, uh, but also um, uh, providing, providing funding for institutions to engage in dialogue and partnerships and so forth. Um, the fourth part uh, kind of uh, focuses on what I guess you'd say energy, sustainable development, climate change, and so there's recognition of need to, to work on oceans pollutions, for example. And then finally, the last piece of it is actually what is Canada going to do in the region, how, it's, how is it going to um, expand its presence. So there is uh, recognition of the need for some uh, further outreach, for some uh, new resources in the region, uh, physical offices, uh, human resources and so forth so uh, plus plus uh, greater integration with some of the uh, regional institutions in uh, in the Indo-Pacific a huge strategy obviously as you break that down and in as you say you know so many more countries beyond China Japan Korea South Asia India etc so is, is it does it become very awkward though trying to deal with this strategy like this when clearly there are issues with China and Canada right now with you know allegations of interference in our pol political system you know, the whole China piece is complicated. We know even before the Indo-Pacific strategy came out that there was a uh, there, was, there were serious challenges in our relationships with China. I think these have been quite well documented over the last uh, few years. Part of it is, is China's more aggressive posture in the region. Part of it is what's happened domestically in terms of uh, 5G, the Meng Wanzhou situation, and so forth. So the, there's a you know there's a, there's a real need to sort of have a reset in our relationships with China um, and and the strategy deals with this in part so you can't you can't take China out of the region but how are we going to deal with China well I think the first thing that it does is uh, uh, it, it uses stronger language, or the term that's used throughout the uh, the document with respect to China is clear-eyed, which I I have some difficulty with. It kind of implies that we weren't clear-eyed before, but I guess it's uh, it, it it it's revising our our situation, dealing with China in an, in an open-eyed way, recognizing that there are opportunities with China, but also recognizing there are some huge challenges as well. So uh, in a sense, um, there's a there's a a lot of rhetoric about China, quite some quite strong language, I guess you might say. We, uh, we call out China on a number of things that uh, we find problematic, both in the region. And while there's no specific mention of China in terms of foreign interference, the uh, strategy does talk about combating foreign interference and so forth. Um, but having said that, it also doesn't say uh, we're going to walk away from China, we're going to decouple from China, we're going to cut ourselves off from China. Frankly, that's not realistic. That's not what any of our other partners are doing. So it that kind of resets the relationship but also leaves open a channel for cooperation with China in areas where it is in Canada's interest to do so and there are a number of these uh, you know pandemics uh, climate change and so forth so it definitely is a change in tone 
uh, a de-emphasis uh, with a re-emphasis on other parts of China, uh, sorry, other parts of the region, but it certainly is not uh, a, a walling off Canada from China, which I think is, uh, from, from an economic and political and just about every other perspective, is not a realistic option. We're talking with Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. Hugh, is there any danger in boosting partnerships with other countries that might not share China's views? I think one of the biggest challenges that Canada faces in this regard is is the perception or the possible perception in the region that we have suddenly discovered or I could say actually rediscovered that we're a Pacific nation and we want to develop relations with uh, Southeast Asia in particular but also countries which, with which we already have pretty good relations, Japan, Korea, but you know put more emphasis on that so we, and this is not the first time this has happened, I mean back in the 80s when the Asia Pacific Foundation was established for example, Canada had a big push in Asia and then we kind of uh, lost the plot, in a sense. We, we focused on other things. Now we're saying we're back, and I think there's a, there's a degree of skepticism. Um, I mean, this, this, pro- this, uh, this program is funded at over $2 billion over five years, so the real challenge will be to let, let, let's see the rollout, let's see what's happening. But the risk is, and this is where Canada has to be careful, that some of these countries in the region are going to think, oh, well, okay, you had to deal with China, uh, and so you kind of want to deal with China by embracing us. Well, everybody has a different perspective of China depending on where they live. Some of these countries in the region have a difficult relationship with China, uh, but a a relationship which is highly dependent in many ways as well. So they don't want to be enlisted, I think, in some kind of China containment strategy. Um, I think Canada has been careful to say this is not zero-sum just because we're doing more in the the other parts of the region that uh, we're trying to, uh, you know, enlist you to help us deal with our China problem. But that's that's, uh, where we have to be careful. I think Canada needs to emphasize that we have rediscovered our relationship with the region for good, valid, bilateral reasons with those countries, not as a counterfoil to China. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Hugh. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. Hugh Stevens, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, also Vice Chair with Canadian Committee on Pacific Economic Cooperation. Have sanctions by NATO and allied countries succeeded in putting the economic squeeze on Russia? How much longer can the Russian economy fund this war in Ukraine? With some insight, we're joined once again this morning by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks again for joining us. You're very welcome. Good morning, Sue. How are we faring in this war at this point? We know the sanctions take a while for any impact to be felt, but uh, has the Russian economy taken a blow by sanctions that have been put into effect by Canada and other allied countries? It's taken a hit, but not in any significant way, in the sense that uh, the Russians have managed to do workarounds. uh, And, uh, I mean, it's very complicated. It's called sanction avoidance. Uh, and they have both an internal ability to do that. For example, um, I mean, Russia has a very large internal economy, but it's been sort of lower priority because everyone loved the Western stuff. Now that the Western stuff is being cut back, what the Russians are doing is making Russian versions of it. So you now you have you know, more Russian Coca-Cola, uh, Russian Starbucks, Russian McDonald's. You see, that's, that's how they're replacing all this mm. stuff because the infrastructure was left behind. And they're simply, you know, using it. So that's one thing. Now, the other thing is about, you know, parts and, and, and chips and all that electronic stuff. Well, you see, you have to remember, Russia is not isolated. Uh, these are Western sanctions. 
Uh, but China is not sanctioning. Uh, India is not sanctioning. Brazil is not sanctioning. Korea is not sanctioning. There's a whole bunch of countries that are continuing to trade with Russia. So Russia can do sanction avoidance, and it is doing that. So the Russian economy has dropped by maybe 3 4% uh, compared to the Ukrainian economy, which has suffered by 30%. So Russia continues. The war potential of Russia, it continues. This is not a major factor. The, the battlefield is the major factor. And that is what is going to determine where this winds up, maybe in the next six months or so. Oh, you think even. What are we seeing on the battlefield then? Obviously, the Ukrainian people are continuing to stand their ground, hold their ground, and, and fight off the, the Russians. So you think we could see an end to the conflict in the, within this year? It's a possibility, but it would not be through a victory by either side. No winners, no losers is where I'm still guesstimating. But let me explain. Right now, the battlefield is a strategic stalemate. Uh, the lines are not moving very much along the eastern front. Uh, yes, you go down one, one level below strategic to operational. The heavy fighting going on in Bakhmut. Um, but the Russians are on, you can describe it as Russians are on the offensive, making very marginal gains in Bakhmut, and in the other, and which is the center of the front. In the other parts of the front, up from the north to the south, they are conducting offensive operations, but in those areas, they're not really moving very much. The Ukrainians are defending. So big picture, Russians attacking, Ukrainians defending, no one's moving very much, both sides losing many people and lots of uh, equipment and so on. Ukrainians are conducting probing operations in the south, uh, in Kershaw, and which, which could potentially threaten Crimea, which is a Russian keystone. And that leads to the other point that the Russians are now on the offensive, but it is completely expected that the Ukrainians will assume their offensive later in the spring, when the next wave of the promised uh, Western uh, equipment, specifically things like the, uh, the main battle tanks, the armored infantry fighting vehicles, uh, newer artillery systems, and a whole bunch of ammunition arrives and is integrated in Ukrainian forces and deployed in combat operations. Then we could see uh, the Ukrainians trying to punch a hole somewhere in the Russian line, most probably in that southern part, to threaten Crimea. But... At the end of all this, so we're talking now by the summer, when the Ukrainians will have played out their offensives, the Russians would have played out the offensives, both armies then need to pause. At that point, uh, we'll see if there is any appetite, which there isn't today, but there may be then, after lots of more casualties and little gains, that both sides might look at some kind of a ceasefire. Not a political settlement, but a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And behind all that is China. So uh, the president of China is uh, expected, it's not yet confirmed, expected to be in Moscow next week. So he's on a diplomatic mission to try and promote the Chinese uh, peace plan. And uh, there is, again, rumor, not confirmed, that uh, Xi, the president, will be calling Zelensky after his meeting in Moscow. This is all part and parcel of Chinese diplomacy to try and end the war. So we'll see. That, there's, there's, there's all these pieces that I've described for you. I can't predict how they'll work out, but these are the these are the pieces of the puzzle that are on the table. Fascinating. Why is China trying to be so involved and come up with their own peace plan to stop this war? China has an interest in in in, uh, in this war ending. This is not 
the best thing. You know, people say well, war is good for economies, only for certain things like the war, like the American industrial complex. Yeah, they're selling lots of weapons. But on the whole, economies do not do well in war. And, and the Chinese uh, really are a war aversion. They, they want a stable international environment. It's that, that's better for the Chinese economy. So their interest is to have stability, peace. They also, uh, as the Americans are their primary adversary in the, in the international community, they want to make sure that Russia does not lose, because a Russian loss would be an American victory. So, you know, the old, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the, the, the Russian, the Chinese are very active right now to stabilize the situation, kind of no winners, no losers, uh, and, and end the war sometime, like they would hope, in the fall, uh, when there is a level of exhaustion and the political appetite to keep fighting declines on both sides. And Andrew, we're hearing reports that there may be some fighting, infighting within the Russian government. I, I would suspect that's been going on all along, but is it even more so now? Yeah, it's come out much more in the public, and uh, and and one of the, one of the key sort of players in this uh, is uh, is Prokoshin. Prokoshin is the uh, leader of the owner of the Wagner Group. This is the mercenary group that's actually doing the heavy fighting in the center of Bakhmut with the regular Russian army supporting on the flanks. So Prokoshin is uh, using um, this operation and his, uh, his role as leader of the Wagner Group to advance his political profile within the Russian elite in Moscow. So he has political ambitions. And, and that's now come up in, in, in the open, open blogs. There's a lot going on now. And there are sort of, you know, the pro-Putin guys and, and the pro-Precaution guys. And that, that's all being talked about now. So, yes, it's, it's come out in the open now. Thank you, Andrew, for your time. Always appreciate your updates. Okay, Sue, uh, anytime. Thank you. Have a great day. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs.